Hello, and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the AL Forum on Religion and Ecology. And this week, I'm really happy to welcome onto the show, Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us. Um, you know, you were one of our first guests when we started the podcast, and it was a very different format. We were doing little, very short things where people were just kind of giving brief introductions to their work. And uh, so for people who don't recall that ancient episode from like almost two years ago, uh, you are an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego, and uh, also on the board of directors of Farm Forward an anti-factory farming nonprofit that sounds really interesting. I want to hear more about that. Uh, and uh, you're a commissioned elder within the United Methodist Church. And uh, one of the things I really want to talk to you about today, especially, is you have a new book out, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. And which, I don't know, there's a lot. I, I grew up in Texas, so, I you know, soul food is around. And uh, But I know a little bit about you. And that you're not a big meat eater. And so one of the things I really like about this book, one of the best opening lines from a book, I did not want to write this book. <laughs> and so I think let's let's start with that. Why didn't you want to write the book? Well, thank you uh, for saying that. It, you know, I um, when I wrote it, I didn't think I was uh, doing anything profound or, or saying anything or writing anything particularly profound. But I will say that has been a good line in as much as pretty much almost everybody's been like, hey, that's kind of a weird way to start a book. I was just being honest. And that's kind of what I was trying to do. Um, but really, at, at its core, I I knew that if I was going to engage this particular topic, and I was going to talk about soul food, which is something that's so sacred, quite honestly, to um, the Black community, uh, that, and I was going to talk about reimagining it in a way that was more plant-based that that was going to cause a lot of feelings to come up <laughs> and push back yeah. <laughs> and you know i was not even say put but just it was going to be a very emotional topic mm-hmm. and i think you know um coming from my background um just you know briefly so i grew up i'm a first generation um college student you know my grandfather was a migrant picker like he didn't learn to read mm-hmm. till he was an adult didn't really go to elementary school my mother just graduated high school um, I wasn't expected to go to college. My parents worked at factory jobs and that's what I was expected to do. I'm from West Michigan. Hmm. That's kind of what everybody does. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with that. Like I right. would totally be a factory worker or a carpenter if that happens to be the path I decided to choose. Um, and so I dealt with a lot of, um, growing up, I dealt with, uh, on, on one hand, people uh, basically suppressing how smart I was, uh, in part because I didn't want people to think I was trying to act white or do that kind of, there was a lot of that was coming up in terms of, oh, you know, you think you're smarter and better than everybody else because, of course, because of racism, white supremacy, people associate intelligence with whiteness, right? Particularly even people of color. And then when I got to the academy, <clears throat> I really struggled, on the other hand, even within Black religious communities, because of coming from a really different class background. You know, I come from, a, again, a really, really poor background and not necessarily feeling like I fit in there as well. Um, and so this seemed like another way in which I was further marginalizing myself. <laughs> and and, and uh, as someone who really is an extrovert who loves being around community um, or values community, I should say, um, you know, this was risky. And I think my first version of the book, I did not, I, the ver- it was very, very different. It was um, much more 
um, ethical in terms of its approach. I laid out an argument and then laid out all the data pointing to why my argument was correct. And then when I got to the end, I was like, this is why I'm right. Um, and so therefore you have to accept my answer. Right. right. And that, you know, is really trigger triggering for people. That's the review. The reviews basically said that. And so mm -hmm. I just took a step back. I was like, okay, how about I meet people where they are, where I am and just talk about, you know, compassion. And for me, I would say, you know, um, decolonial theory or de decolonizing principles and compassion really are the two guiding principles throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. No, um, you know, uh, my, my wife, who, you know, Kimberly Carrefour, uh, she had a kind of experience when, of going vegetarian and she's like a Polish grandma who's like, no, you're eating the sausage. We're Polish, the sausage. And so it is, it's this, like, wow, that's so, when it's a, your cultural identity is tied up in it, then these kind of choices really do, really do push and pull people around in pretty intense ways. Um, so I don't know, I think we got to start by talking a little bit more about like what soul food is, because like you're saying, you know, the soul part is, is spiritual. It's not just a, a culinary delight. It's also religion. It's cultural identity. And so what, what is soul food? For folks who aren't familiar with it deeply, what is this kind of food? Well, I, I define soul food as the food that is prepared um, by, um, cooked by, and influenced and shaped by um, African and Black diaspora culinary traditions, right? And so that's really just a, a long-winded way of me saying like this is the kinds of foods that has served to preserve and promote the black community since our enslavement um it's you know the kind of staples that black people have been able to create when they had to basically try to make um you know the expression is chicken salad out of chicken bleep you know <laughs> uh and also at the same time I talk about soul food as a means by which we preserve our story. And I think that is really when I hear uh, Kimberly's grandmother saying, this is, we're Polish, what we do. That's a big part of what it is, right? It's we, this is how we tell our story of who we are. It's, it's, it's wrapped up in part through what we eat. And so when we're cooking the food and we're eating the food, we remember our ancestors and that's really, really powerful. And I think that's a big part of what soul food is too, that kind of affective dimension of of soul and um that i think is really uh, powerful yeah and then some of the you know research going into the book was you know you're really looking at agricultural practices in plantations so really digging into uh the dynamics of settler colonialism and the way that enslaved africans were part of that uh so i wonder if you can share a little bit about what that was like uh that's you know imagine that's very emotional material to get into but also so many historical complexities going into it yeah, I would say that was the hardest. That was by far the hardest part for me to uh, research and write. Um, this book is was a long process. Um, the original, uh, I always tell my, my students, um, this book began as a final paper for a class I took in 2010. Like that was literally the beginning of the book when I got the idea and I wrote it. <clears throat> and my uh, advisor at the time, uh, Grace Gao, uh, God bless her, she was, um, you know, she was like, you know, this has the makings of a larger project if you want it to be that way. And, and we really sat there over lunch and kind of thought it through. Um, and when I got to the um, point of, so I said that to say, 
I've been working on it for a long time. I, I've been engaging different parts for, um, you know, for years, but this particular portion took me the longest to write, even though it's not, um, not nearly as long as some other pieces because having to read the narratives of people who are purchasing slaves and the ways in which they describe people as things and um, how they would, you know, there were pamphlets that basically described and told enslavers when to go to certain parts in different ports in Africa to buy certain slaves, depending on the kinds of crops you grew, right? So if you're going to grow rice, you wanted to go to a port in the Senegambia region um, in the spring to buy Africans. <laughs> and it was that specific, which is, on one hand, makes perfect sense. Because if you are a capitalist <laughs> and you're thinking about it, you know, it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. You want to be really specific. So you could buy the bike product at the right time. Yeah. And the other hand, um, it's just, it was really depressing. I think as someone who's uh, also an optimistic person, and I believe fundamentally that people um, at the core of who they are is compassion mm-hmm. and, and that we are um, compassionate people. It really made it difficult for me to um, have that kind of stance yeah. or these white people buying these black people. And at the same time, to your point, Sam, I think it's so so helpful that you helpfully illustrate. It gave me the, I think, the language and tools I needed to kind of do my own healing around agricultural work. And I remember, you know, when I grew up and learned about slavery, no one ever, essentially, I was taught that Black people were enslaved because we were really um, strong. We had high levels of endurance and could tolerate a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And while that, in part, there's truth in that, right, there is truth in that the primary reason we were enslaved is because we knew how to grow the crops that they were growing in, in America better than the settlers. Like we did it better. Like we knew how to do it better. We were teaching them how to do things, <laughs> whether it be growing crops, um, animal husbandry, um, farming and irrigation techniques, like all these things come from an African style of agriculture. That's still obvious if you actually go to Africa, right? Like this is, the st- <laughs> and so um, I think learning that, it gave me a sense of pride, right? And a sense of, okay, like this is, like we are, as um, the guide that I met, um, Dr. Ibrahim Asek um, from Senegal, he was at one of the plantations I was working at. And um, he was saying, he's like, you know, we're an agricultural people. He's like, that's that's why they, that's why they bought us. Um, and so in that sense, I think it made me proud. You know, it said like, no, we were not just dumb, physically strong people. We were really, really smart. And, and that, I think, um, opens up a lot of possibilities for how we think about um, what Africans with Black people brought to the development of food in America. Yeah, I found that really interesting reading the book because, I don't know, like uh, the normal narrative is about the strength and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, wow. You just all of a sudden, all of American agriculture has this totally different frame to it. You're like, oh, this has a totally different you know, knowledge base than what we're normally taught about. Uh, so yeah, I found that just just mind blowing to think about, and uh, and yeah, like you're saying, I think that's that's empowering, and also just totally uh, allows us to rethink what knowledge is, because so much of this book is about decolonizing knowledge and finding deeper sources of knowledge. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that. You know, decolonialism is such a buzzword these days, yeah. and it can you know, in different contexts, it's just like oh, more you know. People just use it as a, as a kind of a metaphor or something. But you're really talking about, you know, rethinking knowledge production, rethinking food production. So let's say a little bit more about, about decolonizing knowledge. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, it definitely is a buzzword now. And I would, I'm happy to say that I was using the concepts and ideas around decolonial thinking before I knew exactly what it was called. <laughs> so that was helpful. Uh, but essentially, you know, I lean on the work of Walter Mignolo, um, and I think his work really influenced me. Um, and um, Ivan Cabara, like mostly a lot of Latin American um, scholars uh, in the way I try to think about de decolonizing. And essentially I'm arguing for this kind of recognition that the knowledge that has been produced since roughly the 1500s, so really roughly since the colonial encounter, is all wrapped up in the logics of colonialism, meaning this logics of a white male, like heteropatriarchal kind of supremacy. And so any, any knowledge that's produced and understood to be good is often presented through that lens. And so what our job is in trying to decolonize these particular kinds of sources of knowledge is to disentangle knowledge that's an accurate portrayal of, for instance, Black agriculture or agriculture in general or slavery in general versus what, um, borrowing from the work of Emily Towns, what she calls the white hegemonic ima fantastic imagination, which mm -hmm. I love because what she's basically saying is like, you know, people were projecting their ideas upon black people, upon indigenous people, upon women, white men to, in order to justify their particular positions. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, you know, those narratives have been so persuasive. Those memories have been so persuasive. And I think I talk about in the book, one of, one of the young people that was working with, I was trying to persuade to work in a community garden. Um, when I asked him, he kept saying no. And I was like, I really want you to, you know, do this. I think you'll like it. And he was like, oh, are you, are you trying to make me a slave? And, and that's one of those things where it's like, man, like the idea that any kind of agricultural work is akin to slavery really fits into this broader narrative that's set around what it means, what we can do as Black people with respect to work and labor and the knowledge that we have or don't have. Um, and so it's really about disentangling that. It's not about saying or throwing away, you know, European knowledge as opposed to it's just not good knowledge or that there's something fundamentally wrong with it. It's recognizing that it's it's flawed in the sense that it's missing other knowledges, right? It's only prioritizing one set of epistemologies. I'm trying to add and put it in conversation with all these other sources of knowledge as well um, to build something new, to build something different, not to go back to some kind of utopia, but to move forward in the construction of something new. And, and that for me is the essence of what decolonial thinking is. Right, bringing back these subjugated knowledges. And yeah, and, bring, and the new thing that you're talking about is, is food sovereignty, right? communities that actually have food sovereignty and justice to people in a in a delicious way <laughs> and so you're like no this is actually good these farming practices can be empowering and they can help you and your community flourish together uh i wonder if we could get a little into the religious side of this because uh, that's a big part of your own personal life but it's a big part of the story here too you really can't think about uh food and race in america without thinking about religion uh, so say a little bit about that. Yeah, I thank you uh, for, for, for noticing that. I think um, I don't know that I would have went on this journey had it not been me personally uh, for my own inter interpretation of, um, as Howard Thurman calls it, the religion of Jesus. Um, I once I began to understand and connect the kind of experiences that my my grandfather had, as I write about in the book, I've grown up as a migrant picker, you know, in the South with the experiences of 
farm workers today and factory farm workers, especially, um, I was moved because I knew I could no longer, I didn't want to be complicit in that suffering. Mm -hmm. The stories of my grandfather that I learned growing up that, that he told that we learned about whether eating, cooking, or back in his garden, as he still would call it, but it was huge. Like, but for him, it was a garden, but like, you know, it really was like a farm, <laughs> but it was just a really, really big garden. Um, it, they stay with me. And I realized it's like, if I'm going to be consistent, I'm actually going to say that my grandfather's suffering mattered. Um, I don't want to eat in ways that can normalize the suffering of others. And for me, this was a theological problem. And so I was like, well, how, how, what does it mean for me to shift? How do, how do I, I might go about changing it? And, and the reason I couldn't not talk about religion is religion is such a, is the tool, Christianity specifically was the tool that was used to justify the enslavement of Africans, to justify the genocide of indigenous people, right? To justify the kind of social Darwin racial hierarchy that we still have. Like it has consistently been weaponized to justify the harm um, that we've done to human beings and the exploitation of our planet, right? And so like, if you're going to talk about food justice, if you're going to talk about ecological justice and don't, and you, and, and, and fail to talk about Christianity, I think you're really leaving a huge gap in, in your argument. And I knew if I was going to persuade black people, especially, but people of color and white people in general to think about food, um, I, I had to think, the, to morally think about food, to think theologically about food. I had to engage the ways in which they've been taught through our religious upbringing to believe that this kind of exploitation was okay. Yeah. I had to start from the beginning. Like, this is why that is a, uh, that interpretation is flawed and how it's inconsistent with the ways in which I believe we're called to live according, if we believe we're called to live according to the life of Christ. I know, right? It's so amazing how, how disparate that is, like the, the way that Christianity is weaponized for oppression. And then you like read the gospels and you're like, uh, I think we're, I think we're missing something fundamental about what Jesus was doing. And there's so much food, so much of what Jesus is doing is just eating with people. Like that's the radical Kind of like, why was this guy considered so radical? It's like, he would eat with people, anybody, and just build community through food. And you're like, why would that be such an affront to like imperial systems of oppression? Uh, but it is, you know, if food, uh, food is love and justice. Uh, so yeah, it's, you know, I think it's one of those tough things as Christians to see that kind of dual inheritance. There's the religion of Jesus, but then there's this like weaponized Christianity. Uh, so I wonder how you personally, because I mean, you're, you know, a reverend, you stayed in the church instead of just getting mad at it. You know, some people realize how, how much trouble Christianity has caused, how much violence, and they're like, I'm done. But for you, you're like, no, 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 we're going to recover what's best about it. I think, interestingly, you know, it's funny, as I said, I, I didn't think I would go to, I wasn't planning on going to college. Like, I didn't go to college until I was in my mid-20s. Um, my wife made me <laughs> because she was like, she's like, you're smart. You should go to college. <laughs> um, I always felt like reading the Bible. And again, this is probably another sign. I probably was going to be a theologian because I would read the Bible even as a young adult more on my own. Cause I thought the stories were so fascinating because what I, what I saw in the person of Jesus was someone who just like was always stirring up trouble basically. And someone who was resisting, um, empire. I didn't have the yeah. language to name it that, right? But I knew this this man wasn't just about um, 
like you commit a sin and, and I forgive you. And this whole notion of this kind of atonement where it's just his death on the cross makes everything better. I was much more interested in his life than his death mm-hmm. and um, than just his death, I should say. And so, so that's one strand that always kind of shaped and influenced me. And, it, and, and so for me, I never thought about leaving the church as much as I felt like what I was reading was always disconnected from what the church was practicing. And so I went to graduate school, I felt called to ministry to more try to get those things to be in alignment, right? Um, it was never, I didn't go through that um, phase necessarily. I think some people go through where you just believe everything your pastor says mm-hmm. and or everything your church leaders say. That's just not my, you know, to be honest with you, I'm my default is just to be skeptical, maybe neutral, right? When people say things, I'm like, okay, I might believe you. But eventually you're going to you're going to demonstrate to me like what you actually believe and who you are. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that's really helped me honestly, think with, with, with my with my uh, relationship with religion. Um, and so what I try to do in this book is really get back to some of the fundamental principles of what it means to be human from a Christian perspective. And so as much as I'm joking about the importance of talking about religion, I really only talk about religion in like one chapter of the whole book, like really, really do a deep dive on it. Um, and I try to construct a, the- a new what's theological anthropology, which is just a really fancy way of saying what it means, the God-human encounter, what it means to be human from a Christian perspective that takes serious food and environmental justice. And I begin to de- decolonize the human person, like really just say, okay, how is our notion of what it means to be human shape the way in which we think about other human beings, um, down human nature and our relationship with God. And, and, and I realized to me, I would say that our, our struggle with the disconnect we have from non-human nature and from others is wrapped up in this notion of being human that, that's, that's built on whiteness and maleness and heteronormativity and this kind of capitalist framework of extractivism. And that this is a totalizing force that harms everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I don't try to make it sound like, oh, this is just something that black people struggle with. Like, you know, Sam, I, I'm not I, I look at you. I'm pretty sure you're a white dude. I mean, you haven't told me you're white, but that's what I'm going to guess. Like this is like this wraps up everybody. Like none of us can be our full best selves when we all have to perform to this notion of what it means to be human. That really isn't in alignment with what I believe our spirit tells us how we're called to live. And so I want to and I try to construct an alternative vision of you know, the human person based on this notion that, you know, no being is, um, that basically God loves non-human nature and God God loves us. So that means no one should be exploited. So if you start from there, what does it look like when you build this out? Right. And again, it's not, this is not some kind of radical egalitarian society. I don't think that's possible, but it is a society where there is a non-oppressive hierarchy, right. Where, um, I would say the relationship that I have with my three-year-old son is helped me refine this. I'm like, I am in more or less, I try to be in charge of him. It depends on the day. I'm not going to lie to your listeners. Um, you know, but at the same time, I'm not through my position with him. I'm not, I'm not to exploit him. I'm not to harm him. Like there's a way in which I have to honor his own autonomy, right. In the midst of this. So how do we create relationships with, um, ourselves through this notion of self-love with others through this notion of solidarity and with the, not in the natural world, right. How do we create relationships in the natural world that, builds on this notion of not uh, exploiting unnecessarily 
Um, and, and so that's what I try to set out to do. And I feel like I developed a way of being human that feels more in alignment with um, the religion of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. It seems so much like uh, you get these wholesale critiques of hierarchy where you're just left with nothing other than like, well, I guess then everything has to be flattened into pure equality. And you're like, no, there's there's real differences out there. There's real layers to things. And it's important to have, you know, your parents in charge of the kid. Simple kind of thing. Otherwise, imagine how our households would be run if the children are in charge. So I think some that's people, great. Some people are really, I mean, I will say philosophers especially have gotten pushback from that claim mm. because for them when you're talking about any kind of hierarchy they can't imagine a, hi a hierarchy not becoming oppressive mm. and on one hand i would say that you know because i do believe in theologically i can call it sin but i can say i do believe that people are selfish and do selfish things um there is room for people or there i should say there's room for people to do it it's inevitable that some people will harm but that's not um you know there's a way in which we have to recognize, I believe, that our, our goal is to pull people towards the good, to pull them towards being their best selves. And we can't essentially try to design, again, a utopia that's not realistic. And at the same time, I have been fortunate enough to study indigenous American cultures and indigenous African cultures, where there are many and much better examples of non-oppressive hierarchies um, that exist. And so, of course, the people I'm talking about that critique tend to be white. And their only understanding of hierarchy is the kind of European hierarchy that emerges out of, you know, the Middle Ages, right? That comes in from a feudal system. And I'm like, there are other kinds of hierarchies um, that you need to explore to acknowledge to say that, you know, if you create a place where people feel secure and stable in who they are, and they don't feel threatened, they don't feel the need necessarily to upset that particular kind of balance. Um, and so it's an invitation to create community. I mean, that's that, and that's a, to the point you said earlier, Food at its essence is about community. This is the invitation to really recreate communities that are more consistent with our best selves. That's great. That's such a good example also of decolonizing knowledge, right? You have this European idea of hierarchy that's just this, you know, feudal system that gets naturalized and treated as if it's human nature. And then you're like, actually, just, just look around. Just talk to other people and you see these examples. I know definitely, you know, here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm at, talk to some of the people like the Ohlone people. Yep. And it's like, yeah, we were a matriarchal society. The women were in charge. And you go, oh, well, that's got to be oppressive. And then you look how it operated and you're like, oh, no, this is fantastic. And we need to get you your land back and start listening more. Uh, so, you know, one thing uh, we got to talk about, too, along the way is, is black veganism. That's such a big part of the book. And, you know, one of the really controversial things, because for me, soul food is not vegan. Uh, so I wonder, but, you know, before getting into what you're doing in the book, your own personal conversion is is part of that. So I wonder if you could share that with us. Yeah. So as I was talking earlier about trying to connect or connecting the experience of my grandfather with the experience of, interestingly, it happened in, this would be 2000, um, the year about that paper, uh, AAR was in San Francisco. And I, this is my first time driving up the five. Uh, and I saw everything you see when you drive up to five from here and you, and I was like, this looks like when I drive, when we would drive from Michigan to Mississippi. <laughs> and I was like, this is, I can't believe this is still going on. Like, it, I was just like, yeah, I just, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and so that started it basically. That was like, huh, I don't know that I want to 
opt into this system. Basically, I was like, I don't want to, I don't really want to do that. And so what I did is um, it was a slow conversion. I really appreciate you saying the word conversion because um, I became vegetarian um, in 2010 and had to relearn how to cook. Um, had to learn how to cook, quite honestly, because I didn't really know how to cook. Um, at least I thought now I realized I didn't really know how to cook. Uh, and it really was just a process of saying, well, how can I eat in alignment with my values? And if, and recognizing that the exploitation of nature and exploitation of animals is all wrapped up in white supremacy. And if I am want to be anti-racist and I want to resist white supremacy, then I can't eat animal products anymore. And I was like, okay. And so how, let me set out to do that. And I was very um, patient with myself. You know, like I said, I didn't become vegan probably like five or six years. And I don't have a, this hard and fast date where I'm like, oh, there was this day. I just, I did immediately cut out meat. And then over time, I just kept, kept cutting out more and more dairy, more and more, you know, eggs or anything else. Um, because I knew that I was gonna have to, again, relearn how to cook. And I wanted to still at least eat in ways that felt culturally appropriate and as i learned to make those things in more vegan ways it became easier for me to let them go um and so yeah it was it was a long process it was a process of learning how to cook learn how to recreate food I, I actually i'm friends with brian terry who lives up near where you guys live in oakland uh, he's a black vegan chef I, I was just talking with him uh, maybe two months ago i told him i was like man i think you like literally saved my life like physically your cookbooks like i don't know that because I, I wasn't eating nutritiously i was just eating stuff you know and so i learned how to eat you know um through his cookbooks and other things like that uh and and yeah it, it i wish if i was fortunate enough i'd been able to talk to my if i had thought about this before my grandmother passed away i wish um i had learned from her i've been i've been able to recreate some things that she made just based on taste hmm. um but but she like many black older black women that i encountered that i think i write about a little bit in the book never ate a lot of meat but never would have called herself a vegetarian because she would have thought that was what white people do. Right. Um, you know, and so again, wrapped up in racial politics. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so for me, it was that kind of, uh, that journey signified something that gave me compassion to not push this kind of militant veganism on people because I just don't think that's practical for most black people. Right. Yeah, I like that. So much of your your vision throughout the book is practical. It's not just these, you know, kind of pie in the sky ideals. Like, well, here's a perfect world. Like, well, that's not going to happen. So here's how we can be more practical about really building, you know, food sovereign communities. Um, so I I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, Farm Forward along those lines. What is yeah. what's this group about? So I want to say one more thing about black veganism and then I'll go back to farm forward because yep. I want to say a little bit more about like what that means with respect to broader communities. And so, as I said, um, and actually this ties into farm forward because they really helped me <laughs> with moving to, towards farm uh, food sovereignty uh, stuff. Um, black veganism for me is this practice uh, wrapped up in the practice of what I call soulful, soulful eating. So that's eating in a way that really is about the preservation and promotion of black community. Um, it is a opting out of, of, you know, foods that are animal products. So it is opting into a kind of veganism. I call it black veganism because as I said, my grandmother and other women, especially, but people in general associate veganism with this kind of focus specifically on animal justice. Um, and it's very narrow 
And I wanted to separate the kind of veganism I'm talking about from that by signaling, signaling and signifying that it is about an intersectional veganism. Hmm. It's it, quite honestly, it's, it's anthropocentric because I don't think I would have become a vegan if it was just about the animals. Like I'm just, right. I, I love animals. My wife is a veterinarian. I love animals. Anybody's listening. I'm not a, I have a dog. He's over here asleep right now. <laughs> um, but um, for me, it was tying the construction of the human person, recognizing that what I call the human animal tension um, in, in the construction of the human person, meaning that the category as we understand it of human in the category of the animals, a racialized category, because the ways in which black people and other people of color have been dehumanized, we've been called animals mm-hmm. when we are talked about in ways that um, dehumanize us, whether in popular culture today, you still hear it, right? You hear so these people are acting like animals. And what they mean by that is they're not saying that we're like not homo sapiens. What they're saying is we're not performing humanness in ways that they are comfortable with. And that performing humanness is wrapped up in performing whiteness in a way that which they're comfortable with. And so that category of animal, as it's been used really since the colonial encounter, really has been structured through through race, right? It's really been structured through race. Um, and or I should say it's been racialized, if you will. Um, and so I wanted to bring that to light. I want people to... to eat in a way that really acknowledge the racism that's endemic to our food system, right? I would argue our food system is structured racist, meaning that the labor that produces most of the food is particularly black and brown, but the profits don't go to those people, obviously, the vast majority of it. Um, and, and so it's to bring attention to that kind of exploitation and it's to try to opt into, so that's on one hand, so dealing with human bodies and people and calling out the structures of racism. And on the other hand, it's recognizing that from an environmental perspective, at minimum, being vegetarian and at best being vegan really addresses some of the most significant issues we have with climate change on an individual level. And it's one of the few individual things I think I know we can do and everybody can do because climate change really is an issue we have to solve through policy, solve, but everybody can do something with regards to our food ways and what we eat. And because Black people and poor people and old people actually are disproportionately harmed by the impacts of climate change, this is another way to eat that really preserves and promotes community. And so when I'm talking about Black veganism, I'm really talking about eating in a way that honestly I think is, is in alignment with the, the essence of soul food. It's, it's allowing us to tell our story in a way that's about building up our community and passing on those kinds of, of legacies of knowledge, of wisdom, uh, those stories that I think we want to be able to pass on to our, our ancestors. I want to pass on to my son. Where Farm Forward comes in, that they've been really helpful in funding the research, quite honestly. They, like, I couldn't have been going to those plantations um, had I not had you know, the finances to pay some of these places to let me look through their archives and meet with scholars and pay for my lodging and things I was down there. So they've been really helpful with that. But they've also allowed me to bone up on some policy acumen when it comes to actually some of the things I argue for in the book um, are really influenced through the relationships I've built through there. Um, and they are trying to, they're an organization that is, is premised on eliminating factory farming. And so what I've been able to glean from my work with them and my arguments towards, my argument to push communities to move towards food sovereignty really comes from trying to, as best we can opt out of our current food system that is structurally racist and to create communities that are independent, right? That can really function in ways that we can provide for ourselves as best as we can. And, 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 and particularly for, for, for people of color, 
and in rural communities especially, like these these communities existed really up to like the fifties. So we're not really talking about like that long ago, right? Like, um, I, it's definitely something we can begin to reclaim if we see this as something that's important and something that we ought to do. And so that is um, that's my argument uh, that I make to churches that you know this is a way for us to really engage our communities outside of our four walls, um, rather than just you know preaching a gospel that's about um, just luring people in, right? You know, how can we right. actually, how can we really, how can we serve the community? As you said, it's very, I try to be practical. I'm technically not a practical theologian, but honestly, that is, I, I say I'm a practical theologian in the book. I wasn't that trained, but I think the, um, right. the pragmatic, you know, person who grew up in poverty is just a very practical person. And that's never really escaping me. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. <clears throat> I feel like sometimes it's not that practical to read all the practical theology, so it's like, if you're really a practical theologian, you're not necessarily trained in practical theology. It's like, no, I had other stuff to do. I was being pragmatic about it. <laughs> and I really appreciate that you're talking about anthropocentrism. That's been such a thing for like 50 years of environmental ethics, just attacking anthropocentrism all the time. And I'm like, well, you know, if people really cared about people, then we would clean up our atmosphere and the rivers. We would change food production. So like... It's just, it's such low hanging fruit to get people to care about people. Like, let's just, we can do so much with that. Uh, and I, I think especially because if you're only thinking about uh, taking care of animals, then you're not necessarily going to think about getting off of industrial agriculture. And you're like, oh, that's okay. I'll just go to the frozen food aisle, get some vegetables, and I'm a good person now. I'm like, oh, no, but that's still, that's still a massive problem. Yep. Uh, so how much of what you're doing is also just about like relocalizing food production. Is that a big part of it? It is a big part of it. Um, as best as we can, I think I recognize that, like, for instance, I live in San Diego, local food production here. Well, to be fair, actually, we could, I could eat locally here and I do eat pretty well locally because of the climate and because, and because we're close to the border. Let's be honest, man. Like, you know, uh, right. like, I'm not going to lie. Like, it, you know, like we get a lot of food over that border. Um, and, but having relocalizing food, and doing it in a way that actually prioritizes the farm workers, I think is crucial um, for us to have some kind of long-term stability. What this requires, and by stability, I mean like ecological stability. <laughs> like how can we actually get out of the fast track to climate catastrophe? Um, what this requires is sacrificing being able to eat strawberries in like December. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It requires us making some sacrifices in terms of the goods that we're used to being able to eat at any time of the year. And that's such a American way of eating. That's such a developed Western way of eating. That's not the way, um, it's not the way most people in the world eat. Yeah. And, and we have to recognize that. Um, and as Americans, we are a huge part of the problem with to, with our um, consumption, thinking that we just can have whatever we want. Um, and it's not, again, it's eating with the seasons is very natural. Like these, <laughs> this, this is very natural. And so if I feel like people are like, you know, I mean, you're making this big sacrifice, but in truth, it's just learning, it's learning another way. It's knowledge that your grandparents probably had yeah. that you have to reclaim. Right. Yeah. Um, and seeing that at, for, for what it is in terms of trying to create a society that allows us, you know, um, to survive as a species, um, and so relocalizing food, putting the labor force, um, you know, in positions where they actually can have a living wage, I think is a huge, um, something that I think religious organizations should be deeply involved in. Right. 
Yeah, I can imagine there's such an important role for, for churches in the future. Like this, these can be the hubs around which people are building communities of, of you know, food sovereignty. So, it, you know, get out there, churches. You know, it's such, a, I, such, such an easy point, but it's still kind of a lot of foot dragging. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, on one hand, a lot of churches, especially in urban communities, you know, really have that people there who maybe even grew up on a farm and know anything about farming. And so they hear that and they're just like, I don't know anything about that. But I do believe that, you know, networking and connecting with other people who do know how to grow food, using our land resourcefully, not just to grow grass. Um, and also recognizing that, you know, if you read the climate science, which I have footnotes in the book about it, I don't, I don't try to, I don't try to depress people, uh, <laughs> by putting it in the book. Um, we have to recognize that our food scarcity is, is real. Like it's going to be real. It's already real depending on where you are. Yeah. And so we need to be, um, thinking about how we can provide for the communities and for our own community as we move forward if we are going to continue on the path we're on with respect to um, ignoring um, carbon emissions and some of the significant issues that that's causing with respect to our planet and climate change. Yep. Yeah, it's good to keep it in the footnotes. I know. I'm like, like, it's it's sad. It, it 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 is the hardest part about teaching anything to do with ecology is, is, is dealing with young people, especially that deal with that shame and guilt wrapped up with um, what's happening. And um, I get it, man. I mean, I, like I said, I have a three-year-old son and um, you know, I wonder about the kind of world he's going to um, hopefully be able to grow up in. And, you know, um, I have my students read Parable of the Sower. So anybody listen mm-hmm. to this, who, because of that, I'm like, this is like someone's vision of what the world could be like that was written in the early nineties. That's really similar to what's actually happening right now. So let's, let's, let's think about what we're doing and why we're doing it and, and, and opting out of it again, you know, like this isn't, we don't have to live this way. Like, how can we create institutions that are at the service of life rather than making our lives center around serving institutions? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> man was not made for the law, right? The law was made for man. <laughs> See, you can bring it always back to the text, man. Bring it all back to the text. So I appreciate it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and I, I mean, we're you know both in California where the drought has been so severe. So I mean, this is really bearing down on us and, uh, and on farmers. And 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 at the same time, you think of the history of this, uh, you know, like the American Southwest. It's been pretty dry, and Indigenous people knew how to have sustainable uh, and, and you know and tasty food. And so there are ways and we just need to, you know, be connected to the land. I like that, especially eating seasonally is one of those things. Like, I know it might feel like a sacrifice to not have strawberries in December. The benefit is now you feel connected to nature's cycles again. And so you're part of something bigger than yourself and not just this, I don't know, lonely, alienated consumer. Uh, so ultimately, I think, you know, it's, yeah, it feels like a sacrifice at first, but then there's this big reward that comes of, of being part of community, being part of nature. And you're probably eating something that you otherwise had not eaten, a fruit that can grow in that time of year and reconnecting again with the kind of way in which perhaps your ancestors ate or other ancestors ate. I think this gets to the point you made about anthropocentrism that I want to make sure I make clear. Um, <laughs> the anthropocentrism, while anthropocentrism is helpful in terms of thinking about what we're, they're calling the Anthropocene, at its core, it's really addressing what I would say we need to be cl- clear who we're talking about. We're talking about kind of, uh, you know, again, a, um, a white capitalist, you know, um, hetero 
patriarchal framework. We're talking about that. That's the Anthropocene. It's that those are the people who are causing the massive amounts of global climate change. It's the corporations. It's it's people who make billions of dollars. That's who we're talking about. And so, yeah, if you want to critique that, you need to be very specific. Yeah. Don't say things like it's the Anthropocene or this is about anthropocentrism. No, no, no. There are certain kinds of ways people are practicing being human that ultimately harm other human beings. Yeah. Right. Call that out. This instead of using a kind of language evasion and trying to make it seem like it's a blanket statement on all human beings let's just be really really specific about who's doing this and why won't they do that well because there's usually white people who feel uncomfortable naming white supremacy naming sexism naming patriarchy naming capitalism as one of the fundamental like flaws that's gotten us to this point and i think unless and until we begin to to do that to really recognize that again it's not it's not anthropocentrism as such it's that our fundamental assumption of what it means to be human is wrapped up in a in a, an oppressive way to be in the world, and I would argue until we redefine that, um, you know, we are going to be continuing to make the same mistakes. That's yeah. why I don't argue for being human. I, you know, I, I, I don't, in the sense of, for I don't think it's helpful from a black perspective to respond to when someone says, "Oh, you're just an animal." To respond by saying, "Oh, I'm a I'm a human too." I'm like, no, that that category of human is is yeah. is messed up. Like, I don't. That's not what we want to be. Right. Like, I don't want to be equal with the oppressor. I want to dismantle the systems of oppression, which means I have to reimagine what it means to be human outside of this framework. Um, And so, again, that's I think it's 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 looking to those indigenous folks as human beings, humanizing them and saying, well, how did they survive in this place? And maybe there were less of them here, which ultimately does mean that maybe some of us are going to have to move. And you know what? That is that's likely. And thinking about that ahead of time, rather than trying to think about it and pretend it's not going to happen. Um, I think we would be very wise to do so. But again, you know, I'm trying to be pragmatic and practical, um, telling people in San Diego, you know, it may not be the best place to live on this coast, <laughs> you know, or, or, or New Orleans where the mother's side right. of the family lives, mm. you know, that's tough. I love New Orleans, but it's not, that's not a place you should live right now. Like it's yeah. not, it's, it's, it, and it's sad, but the reality of the situation is um, unless we make fundamental changes to how we are living on this planet, um, you know, we're going to lose some of these spaces and, and, and we need to make those shifts. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the practical and, and optimistic, even in the face of really immense challenges. Uh, and that tone really comes through in the book. It doesn't, there's some environmental writing though. It's just feels so bogged down at how bad it is. And you're like, no, you're facing that, but there's just like, yeah, well, we can do this. We can do this. And, and if this doesn't happen, then okay, then we're probably gonna have to move. And, you know, and it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a refreshing tone. I, I appreciate it because stuff, I haven't finished it, but stuff I've read so far, it feels just, uh, I don't know, I guess hopeful might be the word or courageous, old virtues, those kind of things. I am a virtue ethicist. And so, yes, <laughs> those, those, those are definitely in there. Uh, you know, I think that we need to talk about cultivating a kind of resilience. And, and quite honestly, Sam, I think um, most Black people in America are very resilient because we've had to be to survive. And, but I'm te- and, I, and part of the reason I talk about race in the book is, you know, white people have to develop the kind of resilience that marginalized communities have had to develop, yeah. you know, and that takes intention, but it totally can be done. And, and so there's no reason to not be hopeful. We have all the tools we need to address the problem. It's do we have the will to address mm-hmm. the problem? And so I'm about just trying to persuade people um, to pull people towards the good, um, not to force it. You can't make anybody do anything um, long term. We have to persuade people that this is 
this is the way to go and this is a better way and and and, and you'll be happier if we do it this way too yeah. if you lean into it nice beautiful okay can't end on a better note than that. So we'll leave with the happiness. That's a great thing. And, uh, and geez, I don't know, I could talk to you forever. Uh, we'll have to have you back sometime to chat more. Uh, really doing great work. It's just always inspiring and, and illuminating. So uh, thanks so much for making time for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sam. I really appreciate being here. All right. Well, we'll be back uh, next week with some more conversations for you. And in the meantime, take care and be well.